0: How can we build networks of solidarity in academia? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with kerry Soto Sotovega in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalifa al-Zani chair in communication. Together with Fagundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. All right, welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us Dr. Kevin Soto-Vega. Dr. Sotovega is an assistant professor in the Department of Rhetoric, writing, sorry, writing, rhetoric and digital studies at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky, where she's also an affiliated faculty in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies. Professor Sotovega completed her Bachelor of Arts in Secondary English Education and Multimedia Technology in the Department of English at the University of Puerto Rico her Master of Arts in English Education, also in the Department of English, and also at the University of Puerto Rico. And then she obtained a certificate in university teaching, a certificate of advanced studies in women's and gender studies, and a Doctor of Philosophy in Composition and Cultural Rhetoric, all of that at Syracuse University in New York. She's working on a book called Rhetoric of Defiance, Lolita Lebron, Feminism and Puerto Rican nationalist Struggles, which is under advanced contract with Ohio State University Press and has published lots and lots of articles in journals and in edited volumes. Very, very impressive uh, productivity for somebody who almost a few years ago just finished the PhD. Welcome to El Café Latinx.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be chatting with you.
0: <laughs> we are delighted to have you with us today, uh, Karian. So, so tell us how how did it all begin? That is, how was the journey that led you to become an academic?
1: Um, okay, I, that is uh, how long do we have? Um, because I think it could go as far back as. Um, me as a child playing, my mom was a teacher. So I was always kind of um, admiring her and using her markers in the Formica kind of based um, furniture with my plush toys as an audience. And I was teaching them chess with a book that my dad gifted me. So um, that was like my earliest recollection of like, okay, I think I want to do this teaching thing. Um, But then as I grew up, I saw how my mom um, had to deal with screaming children. And so I said, no, maybe I should do secondary English ed. And so I tried that. um, But then I decided, no, I want to go even further. So um, I went with a master's. Um, and uh, the, the my BA was in Aguadilla, which is a town an hour from San Sebastian, and it's like two and a half hours from San Juan, which is the, the capital of Puerto Rico. Um, and then my BA is from Mayagüez, which is like 45 minutes away. So there are different kinds of campuses, um, all public education. Um, and then I... Graduated around the time of the height of a recession in Puerto Rico. That's when um, there were these economic changes, and I think the beginning of the debt that has been so um, detrimental, right? And and part of a lot of our scholarship um, was taking hold. Um, there was a massive student strike in the in the UPR, the main campus in Rio Piedras. Um, many of my friends were beaten by cops in those uh, kinds of demonstrations it was just a horrific uh kind of moment and so I just decided to take a break um from the academy um I actually tried my luck at uh being a music journalist in New York City for a year while I made a living by waiting tables um actually I was a hostess I wanted to wait tables but I, I became a hostess and um then I got comments from editors saying, your writing is too academic. So I couldn't escape it. so decided to go back to grad school. Um, and as I mentioned in my talk today, I really just wanted to write. Um, I, I, I was focusing a lot on the Puerto Rican indie rock scene at that time. That's what I thought I was gonna be studying. Um, but I wanted to bring a Caribbean-based Puerto Rican voice into us-based academy and so you know it's been a while since i moved out 2010 um but my upbringing um, has always inspired me to continue to give voice uh to a perspective that is not um I, in my studies i didn't find it as much right and more and more i'm, I'm involved with the puerto rican studies association and engaging in, in those networks and and see that there are folks out there um But, yeah, that's that's the kind of community and kind of um, network that I want to amplify, emphasize and uh, continue to be part of. Yeah, I hope that that answers. I think that that was a good succinct (laughs) bio.
0: It's a great answer. And so you go from Puerto Rico to New York to become a music journalist tried that for a year, it's not working all that well according to your, you know, goals. And then you decide to go to grad school again. Already mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. grad school at that point. Uh in Puerto Rico. But this time you study at Syracuse. Why Syracuse? How was the process of choosing a graduate program? Um why that particular field and not say musicology or mm.
1: Yeah. That That's a great question. Um, I, I currently have a grad student who um, is in the Gender Women's Studies graduate program here at UK, and she came from an ethnomusicology program. Um, and so she's working with me now to kind of try to marry the two. Um, yeah. And I decided to go with a program that would allow me to transition in a a smoother way, right? From English ed to composition and rhetoric is not much of a jump. Um, There is a long history about why these are too distinct and sometimes they're not, sometimes composition and rhetoric programs are within an English department. Um, And so I don't wanna rehearse them, but I definitely knew when I was researching that I wanted to do cultural rhetoric because I wanted to do cultural studies. That was something that was in um, my interests. So there was Michigan State and Syracuse University. um, And so there's a friendly competition, I would say, between those two and those were my two options. But having lived in New York City, having, Proximity to New York City for me was um, important, but um, also the hills and the fact that I could see the lake from the hill reminded me of the geography in Puerto Rico, even though it was cold, of course. Um, And so it it was just, it just felt right. Um, And of course I could have worked and have been working with professors in both institutions from the beginning, you know, I kept those connections. Um, as you could probably notice, I'm very friendly. So I'd like to kind of welcome folks and open uh, and expand networks of solidarity and struggle. So um, so I knew that Syracuse was the right choice but I kept those conversations open, yeah. And I think a lot of folks actually, um, had the same sorts of decisions to make and as a grad student in the program who was you know helping incoming students to make those decisions when they were visiting I would always say and now I would say that to to graduate students who are interested in moving um, go with your gut and go with what you think would be most useful um, and potentially even what's necessary for your own well being, um, you know, what kinds of healthcare, what kind of payment would you have, what kinds of teaching would you be doing? Um, so, those were things that I didn't really consider that much at that point, but that I would definitely retroactively m- recommend thinking about. Yeah. So, besides the
0: fact that there was water in the proximity and some elevation, right, uh, between Syracuse and the different parts in Puerto Rico where you were raised and live, are significant differences, right? Um, in the people, in other parts of the geography, and in your case also in the fact that, as you said, you studied in Puerto Rico in public institutions and Syracuse is a private institution. Mm-hmm. Taking into account all of these both similarities and And differences. How was your experience during grad school, especially at the beginning, first few Mm. years? Mm.
1: You know, I think that my experience wasn't that different from many folks in the sense that that first year is really difficult. And um, it's always a transition period that has its growing pains. And for me, um, having moved from a place where I had friends nearby where there were uh, Puerto Rican restaurants, for example. Um, that that was a struggle. Um, but what happened was that I started connecting with other Latinx folks. And I found out that there was this initiative called La Casita. And it was run by a Puerto Rican woman. It still is, Tere Paniagua. Um, and they do such amazing community-based work. Um, they help the communities to um, use the resources of the university to um, foster community, but also cultural right um, awareness and celebration of that culture in relation to then like their aspirations, right? And this is speaking of community and 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 students and like the. Syracuse public schooling. Syracuse is one of the poorest cities in the United States, um, so there was a lot of poverty. There is still, um, and so I, I, I did take it. Take it took me time to kind of understand the the context in which I was, um, and and to make those connections with folks who I could speak Spanish with, even as we were all as we were talking about before, kind of comparing accents. Um, One of my friends is from Barcelona. Another one is from, well, a lot of them were from Peru. Um, And so I just loved that kind of uh, community that, that I created. I also made good friends with people in other programs during the orientation period. So that's like the all, every TA needs to, this orientation and so it helped me to kind of make connections and compare how their experience was versus my isolated right in this program experience and so it sometimes we tend to keep to the folks that are in the department and they become your best friends um, your cohort for example and that's great um, but I always also emphasize and especially with my kind of interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary kind of uh, uh, bend, Um, I was always having conversations about the topics that I was interested in with folks in other disciplines. And so it it just made for a more enriching experience.
0: Very interesting. And in terms of the research, from the get-go, did you know that you wanted to be a scholar, number one, number two, how did you choose your dissertation topic?
1: Mm, Okay, so I think I always saw the PhD as a selfish endeavor. I was thinking that I just wanted to keep being a student. I wanted to be a student for life, and so I think of myself as a scholar, as a student for life, Um, because that's what we do, right? We research, we learn, we write about it, we have debates, we think about it more, we have conversations, we expand our knowledge and we we create collaborations and so on and so forth. Um, So that's what I knew uh, that I wanted to do. And I was lucky enough to get a tenure track position where I can do that and have the the resources to do that. but I know that a, a lot of folks are doing academic, alternative academic right, positions where they are using their skills and they get to do their nine to five and then they're, they're happy. Um, so I'm open in that sense. And um, the other part of your question was about my dissertation research. That I like to say, um, it was a project that found me because as I mentioned before, I thought that I was gonna write a uh, rhetorical history of indie rock scenes in Puerto Rico. Like I wanted to expand work that I did in my masters where I included rock music and videos as a text in the cl- in the ESL classroom at that time. Um, and I brought some of my friends from the scene um, and they played and they talked about their writing process. So it was very much multimodal composition and critical media literacy studies. And I thought that I was gonna expand on that. Um, but then I took feminist rhetoric with Eileen Schell, who ended up being my chair of the dissertation. And her assignment, her final was find a woman or a group or a feminist group, it didn't have to be a woman. Um, that you would like to do rhetorical history on. So I was Googling, I was thinking, okay, Julia de Burgos, wonderful poet, amazing uh, subject. Lots of people have written books on it, but I felt like, well, you know, from a rhetorical standpoint, I, I could advance the and expand the feminist rhetorics canon. Um, in the... Wikipedia page of Burgos, there was a picture of a stone that was tribute to the many Puerto Rican nationalist women um, that existed, and among them was the name Dolores Lolita Lebron, and I, Soto Mayor, and so I'm Soto, so I was like, I kind of recognize this name, but I don't know who this woman is. So let me look into it. And then I find out that she and three other men, Puerto Rican men, um, engaged in an armed assault against US Congress in 1954. And I did not learn this history in my public schooling, um, not even in college. Um, So to me, that was just like fascinating to think about. As I kept doing the research, I remember going through the library and finding a book and then telling my roommate friend Tessa, Tessa, guess what, Lolita Lebron, and she's like, it's your grandmother or something like, it's related to you. Um, I said, no, but her granddaughter actually went to Syracuse and was married to a professor in the languages department, Argentinian. Um... And so I went and talked to him and it just became, it just snowballed into this set of uh, interesting connections. Um, Her growing up in Lares, which is the town next to San Sebastian. Years later, as I'm writing my dissertation, my dad tells me that we have Soto Soto Mayor family in Lares. And I'm like, well, maybe we are related afterwards, Um, after all. So I, yeah, I just kept out of curiosity um, looking for information on this woman and um, came up with the concept of of rhetoric of defiance as a descriptor as a frame to thinking about her work not just in that moment in 1954 but also throughout her entire life um, because she went to jail for 25 years and in jail she engaged in these like networks of struggle and and in solidarity, and so she was released in 1979 along with the other political prisoners because of activism that happened outside. Um, so even though there weren't digital tools, right, to, to kind of make these campaigns uh, to to free these political prisoners, there were networks um, that were engaged in these solidarity struggles and internationalism, right, of the 70s. Um, so yeah, just that's how the project came about, and so now I'm turning it into a book that I can, um, you know, use to continue to educate about this woman, but also to think through what it means to engage in a rhetoric of defiance against the US empire. What does that mean, so.
0: Fascinating story. I mean, the project found you and found the part of yourself in a sense that, you know, you also discovered alongside discovering the subject.
1: Oh yeah, and I remember talking to my uncle who I called my hippie uncle. Um, and he told me, wow, that's amazing. And then he told me that he used to wear a young Lord's pin and that that got him, um, that made him a uh, figure to be surveilled because in Puerto Rico there was in, in, in the 50s, 60s, 70s even before that, um, they call it carpeteo, which is carpetas that the government had on uh, how they were just watching people and looking at what, what they were doing because they would be potential radicals, right? Um, that would be then uh engaging in actions against the state. So I was there was an actual personal connection there as well, not so much with Lolita per se, but just like the general ideology of a free Puerto Rico. Um And I think that that's just another kind of fascinating history that I didn't know much about growing up as I was in my own little world, creating mixtapes and having fun.
0: (laughs) And how was the process of researching and writing the dissertation for you?
1: That was an interesting... um, I think time Um, and and I would say that it's something that I think about often because now I find myself writing the book, which is a different process. Right. But not that much. Uh, There's still these uh, moments of. struggle in the sense of okay I cannot see the connection just yet so I need to share this with someone and someone can help me out right um so in the process of writing a dissertation you're doing that with your committee members so you have that kind of support system even though it often and very much is uh, more of a surveillance uh, you know like are they doing their work um are they actually producing um, or are they not able to do it? Maybe this project isn't really um, as productive as we thought, so on and so forth, right? So my my strategy was more so to use the space of uh, courses, such as the the feminist rhetoric uh, class, um, to develop seminar papers that would be then workshopped chapters for the dissertation. So my second chapter was written in a post-colonial feminism class with Chandra Mohanty. I took that chapter and I took it to a uh, RSA Institute, Rhetoric Society of America, um, a seminar on citizenship, because that was what that chapter was about. So other people read it, Karma Chavez, Kate Balchowski. my uh, debt of gratitude always to them. And so, then it went into you know all the other kinds of uh, hands that it had to, but that's how I went about it. I tried to produce papers that um, could be turned into chapters during coursework, and then the the main uh, chapter that was uh, written outside of coursework that one took a while. <laughs> not uh, not surprisingly. Um, so yeah, that was that was kind of my process, and and for now I'm also just relying on writing groups, accountability groups, friends and colleagues, um, using the National Council for Faculty Diversity and Development as an accountability structure, um, just using these tools and uh, groups that would keep me going because I am very much a collaborative kind of person I, I cannot just write isolated I'm not that kind of scholar yeah
0: so this means that you knew from very early on right that you wanted to do to focus on this topic for your dissertation that you were able to weave the intellectual exploration and earlier phases of writing right into your coursework because many times students choose their topics as a fourth year, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I found out this project and this course, um, it was my second year. So I just had a, um, I took that class on my third year <laughs> with chandra Chandramahanti, for example. Um, so I just took that class because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to have this experience ever again. So even though I was done with my coursework, I decided to take a class. Um, However, um, and I hope that my partner doesn't mind sharing, but his project, he's a PhD candidate at Syracuse University in Geography. His project came about in his fourth year, yes. And um, at this time, um, he has gotten an offer for a job um, because the project is so rich because he took his time. He knew that this was kind of like a back burner kind of project. Um, he knew that he was interested in it, but it was not as an easy transition, right? Um, but once it got started, it was just so rich that it it became um, easier to, to handle. So I always um, advise any kind of student to go again with your gut in, in relation to your project. If it's something that you came to the PhD program thinking you were gonna do and you stick it out, great. You know, if that works for you, wonderful. You can always find other curiosities and develop that as your program after you're done with your dissertation and, and the program, right? And you're an assistant professor somewhere or an independent uh, scholar, wherever you may end up, right? Um, this is what we do if we want to continue to be scholars for life but um either way people should go with their guts
0: yeah and how was the job market process for you also going with your gut
1: in a way yes um because let's just say that well first i had a brief stint i i call it i dipped my toes and so i only applied to like five places and i got like three interviews and I had like two campus visits um so not not too bad for my first time um but I didn't get an offer um I could talk more about how one of the programs never even told me that I wasn't going to be considered even after I emailed them so that's a (laughs) no-no that is not a good practice and not a good sign um I've learned but in my second uh stint at the market, I had uh, about five interviews scheduled for January, but a few of the other interviews um, were held earlier. And I even had, so my first and only campus visit that year was here at the University of Kentucky. They were very much early. Here's the offer, early December. Um, And so I had to say no to... Uh, job in uh, Michigan State University (laughs) or uh, Central Florida where I had a friend Um, and you know I literally went with my gut because I didn't know much about Kentucky I did not know that there was um, that there is such a rich set of groups of activism Latinx community um, there's a lot of diversity here in Lexington, more so in Louisville. Um, and so, you know, there's always these stereotypes about different states. Um, and 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 at this point in my life, I do have a few states that I'm just like, no, never. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people do too, but it it does it, it requires, right? Um asking questions um to folks who may be in the area. Um, asking questions to your advisors, mentors, asking friends, asking friends who are in um, the field as well. Um, So it does, I think, require some level of going for it. Um, uh, Thankfully, it's worked out for me This this program has been great. And uh, the department has been very supportive. um, And I'm part of so many different communities here, gender, women's studies, social theory, Latin American, Latinx, Caribbean studies, right? Um, that it, it, it's it's fulfilling. Yeah, so it, it worked out. And the
0: adjustment to, uh, from being a student to being a tenure track faculty, and especially for someone, like as you said, you're very collaborative and very expansive you know, in only your thinking about your practice, that you belong to multiple communities. You're also very active in the Puerto Rican Studies Association, et cetera. So how have you both experienced the change and managed to the extent that this can be managed? Mm. Uh,
1: yeah, I was lucky that there were two recent hires. Um, in the department, who really helped. Um, we believe in horizontal mentorship. We believe in helping each other out. And so even though they were just a few years ahead of me in terms of the tenure track um, trajectory that a lot of folks don't think about, uh, <laughs> it's like it's basically going for another program. Um, they were really key for me to figure out the many moving parts of what it means to be in a department as an assistant professor, creating new courses, so on and so forth, right? Um, But I did also continue my service, which was only 10% of my uh, department uh, distribution of efforts. Um, So it's mostly for this research institution, mostly research. 40% teaching and 10% service. And so some of my service was serving in the college composition and communication conference board and the rhetoric society of America board. And so that allowed me to have conversations with scholars at different levels and different institutions throughout the U S. And I think that that was really helpful because they were giving me advice that people in my immediate department couldn't give me. And I like to kind of pay it forward, right? And so now, as serving in a Puerto Rican Studies Association board, I I work closely with the graduate students who then become assistant professors, early career scholars, and we continue to kind of foster these um, strategies to get by, publish, publish where um, it is, is publishing the important thing um, is is creating a project where you. Win grants, which you know, kudos if you do. <laughs> um, but that's really how I've come to see it. It's really a, a network of solidarity, and um, and just continuing to build those networks would be th- the best way to adapt then to whatever new um challenges you may face. I, I've, a lot of my friends and colleagues are already associate professors, some of them are graduate students, some of them are full professors, some of them are independent scholars, right? Um, So because we need to have these, again, horizontal mentorship structures, um, and so that, that would be my main advice if someone were to ask, just continue to build those networks of solidarity and and fostering these horizontal mentorship structures.
0: Following up on that and diving a little bit deeper, some of your institutional slash service building slash service commitments are to what I would call generalist associations, rhetoric society of America. Some are devoted to more specialist Associations, a Puerto Rican Studies Association focus on a particular community. How do you see the space of Latinx communities and Puerto Rico is Latinx and Latin America, right? Is <laughs> mm-hmm. um in that sort of more liminal um, right intersection. Um how do you see the the, the space? that uh, these two communities occupy within the larger communities. And um, what do you see in the future in terms of how to grow visibility, how to grow centrality?
1: Do you mean the, the communities themselves as in like Puerto Rico and or Puerto Rican communities? And in, in, in the academy. Within the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like I tried to do, and I think Catalina actually mentioned her, her seminar presentation was very much about translation. And, and so I think that that's a good key term to think about it. It's translating Puerto Rican studies for a rhetoric, right? A community, um, or communication or, um, thinking about rhetoric and cultural rhetoric, particularly in let's say, even though I haven't been, but I want to, LACLAS or American Studies Association, right? So it it is to me the best way to kind of create these bridges that would then make it so that me as a person, but also as a scholar can be legible, can be understood. Um, For example, a lot of the folks in, in Puerto Rican Studies um primarily uh anthropologists would think of rhetoric as a bad thing right like anytime that rhetoric is mentioned it's like in the negative sense but to me there's rhetorics of liberation right um and that's a very important perspective to think about us as agentive right as as uh, capable communicators um and so That's what I try to do in in having a voice in these diverse spaces um, that have their own kinds of disciplinary perspectives. And I would say also, I think um, Nelson Maldonado Torres talks about ethnic studies as um, decolonial uh, transdisciplinarity. And um, then on the other hand, we have the undercommons, right? By uh, Fred Moten and Harney, who say we should just abolish disciplines. <laughs> we need to just continue our uh, radical right projects. And um, so, I think that, particularly the Black radical tradition. So, to me, I like to kind of wander in 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 between those, as you said, liminal spaces. is a Puerto Rican, it's kind of a condition that I'm used to. Um, And so that's what I'm trying to do, kind of trying to make all of the multiple lenses that inform my work legible to the other ones who are not perhaps as familiar with.
0: Fascinating answer. So this leads me then to our last question. So, So if you had magical powers or would this be a magical power then could be granted one wish about how you would like the study of rhetoric, communication, and media to change. What would you wish for?
1: I would probably create a Coachella-like Conference (laughs) where all of these different communities uh, could come together and uh, talk amongst each other, right? Um, If I could put together the folks in Rhetoric Society of America, MCA, um, LACLAS, and Puerto Rican Studies Association in a room or in a field uh, somewhere, that's why I mentioned Coachella, not so much because of the debauchery. then that would be my kind of dream. And I think that, yeah, I would love to make it happen. And so that would be, that's what I'm gonna try to do now with my time. <laughs> Thank you for putting that dream in my purview. Oh,
0: well, that's excellent. So between translation and brokerage, combination of uh, both. All right, that's a great way to end this conversation, Garriane. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experience uh, with us. Thank you to our listeners for staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to tune in to the next episode of El Café Latinx. Once again, this was terrific. Thank you very much.
1: Gracias. Hasta luego. (laughs) Hasta
0: luego. El Café Latinex is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojtkowski, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Suárez.